Well, a couple of years ago, our family had a bit of a milestone. I would say, specifically, Andrea and I hit a milestone. We were able to leave our kids home alone for the very first time. Yeah, that is something to celebrate. And we went out for a a well-deserved date night to Costco. Yeah, I tell ya, I know. We were excited, a little nervous. You know, there are some questions like, would they get along while we were out? Would they follow the rules, right? What would happen while we were gone? Because it's one thing to toe the line when mom and dad are there, but it's a whole thing altogether to see if you'd get along when no one's watching, right? Now, when we came back, we were glad and admittedly a little relieved to see that everything worked out well, and the boys, they were super eager for us to go out again real soon. They loved their little taste of independence. But the great thing was that it confirmed to all of us, not just us, the parents, but to them as well, that they could be trusted and responsible to live as we taught them, right? That while we were gone, they would behave in the ways in which we instilled in them. And that's just what we see in this morning's passage in Philippians 2, 12 to 18, where the Apostle Paul, he not only exhorts the Christians at Philippi to remain faithful by being obedient to the ways that he's taught them, but he also wants them to understand that obedience, it's working out what God has worked in. Obedience is working out what God has worked in. Let's look at Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation." Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, pause for just a quick moment of prayer. Lord, we ask you that you would be here with us this morning, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, verse 12 of this morning's passage, it starts with the conjunction, therefore. And whenever we come alongside a, a passage where it starts with a word like this, we have to go back and see why the therefore is therefore, right? And it's continuing this train of thought that Paul had started all the way back in chapter 1 at verse 27, where he says to them, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So all the verses from 127 up to and including today's passage to 12 to 18, they're all about the Philippians conducting themselves or acting in a way worthy of Christ. Or to say it another way, these verses, they are all about faithful obedience. And throughout these verses, we see for Paul, faithful obedience is marked by unity 
and humility. Faithful obedience is marked by unity and humility. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, Paul encouraged the Philippians to be like-minded and selfless, to put others' interests above their own, and to look out for, for one another. And then in verses 5 to 11, he instructs them to be like Jesus in their relationships with each other. Humble. And he does this by reciting this beautiful hymn about Christ, which Reese walked us through last week, that describes how Jesus humbled himself to serve and sacrifice for others in order to be obedient to God, and how that obedience, it led ultimately to Christ's exaltation. Now here in verses 12 to 18, Paul is urging the Philippians one final time to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of Christ, to be unified through their obedience. And we'll see that obedience is working out what God has worked in. Verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oh my, there is a lot going on in just this one verse. First, Paul acknowledges that the Philippians have been obedient when he was there with them in person. But now he's not. Now he's sitting in a Roman prison. And just as Andrea and I hoped that our children would behave when we left them home alone, unsupervised, Paul wants the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, whether he's with them or not, but especially when he's not with them. See, parents, they're happy anytime their children are behaving and getting along, but there is nothing sweeter to a parent's ears than when you hear somebody else tell you that your children are so well behaved when you haven't been around. And this makes parents happy for several reasons, but I think the most pleasing thing is for a parent to see their children grow and mature and live responsible lives. That they're growing and maturing and living responsibly. And this is the same thing for the Apostle Paul. You see, he is the Philippians' spiritual father. He has, he's the one who brought them and taught them the gospel. He's the one who's telling them what it means to be a follower of Jesus and a part of the body of Christ. And so the Philippians, their unsupervised obedience, it's far more significant than their faithfulness that they showed when he was with them. Because their obedience, despite his absence, shows that they are maturing as Christians. Now, the second part of this, verse 12, this is a part that has troubled many believers. Paul writes, In my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out. This has confused many believers because we've always been taught time and time again that salvation is a gift, that this is not something we work for. In fact, Ephesians 2 it says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. This is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And it's Paul who wrote those words in Ephesians, and he seems to be contradicting what he's saying right here in Philippians. Like, what's going on, Paul? But we have to notice closely what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. He says, work out your salvation 
Work it out, not work for your salvation. Little example here. Some of you know that I'm an avid cyclist, and a few years ago, uh, a man in my church who was a retired triathlete, he found in his garage a bike that he was no longer using, and so he decided to gift me this road bike free of charge. So this was a free gift. There's nothing that I had to do for it. I didn't have to pay for it. What a wonderful gift it was. Now, when I take that bike out for a ride, when I put it through its paces, I'm working that bike out, right? Which is exactly what the person who gave it to me hoped that I would do with it. But I never worked for it. It was a gift. And salvation is like that. We never have to work for it. We could never earn it, but when we receive it, we have to work it out. We have to exercise the full range of its function in our lives through obedience, just as the gift giver, God, wants us to. And you see, salvation, it's not just this one-time thing that happens for us in our past when we came to faith and confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, certainly that moment is significant. But for Paul, salvation doesn't happen just in the past, but it happens in the past, right now, in the present, but also salvation is a future tense as well. You see, it began when we first put our faith in Christ, but it continues right here in our present moment as you and I continue to work out our salvation, as we live in a manner worthy of the gospel, And then salvation will come to its ultimate climax on the day of Christ that Paul mentions time and time again, that day of Christ that we're moving forward to, looking forward to, praying would come soon. That day when Jesus returns with his kingdom in full to restore all things, where he puts all things to right, that's when salvation will finally be fulfilled. And so, working out our salvation as we do this in the present our obedience to jesus is a part of god's salvation plan for the world when you and i live obediently we are fulfilling god's salvation plan for the world it's the role that you and i play in the restoration of all things that will come to final fruition when jesus returns so what does paul mean though when he says Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. These words might evoke this connection, you know, to that dread that came over people whenever they had an encounter with the living God that we read about in the Old Testament, right? They were fearing for their lives. But, you know, that sense of dread and anxiety, it seems to be missing from this passage here altogether, Theologian Gordon Fee, he connects it to the way that Paul uses the same phrase in 1 Corinthians 2, where there Paul writes, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. 
See, Fee points out that fear and trembling in Corinthians is connected to weakness and that Paul uses the phrase to indicate his vulnerability and his dependence on God's spirit rather than human strength and will alone. And I think that's exactly what Paul is getting at here in Philippians. He wants them to work out their salvation and be obedient to Christ, but not out of their own strength or their own will, but through their utter dependence on the power of God. That's why he completes his reason, his line of thought with verse 13, when he says, for it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purposes. This, friends, this is a verse worth memorizing. This is a life verse. For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purposes. It's like Paul is saying, in order to be obedient, you have got to recognize that you are weak so that you'll totally rely on God so that you'll totally rely on his strength and on his power. In John 15, Jesus, he tells his disciples the same thing by giving them this illustration of of a vineyard. And he says to them there, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches got to remain in Jesus. You see, God's work in our lives, it is critical to obedient living because not only do we not have the strength within ourselves to be obedient, but friends, if we are honest, we also often lack the desire to live faithfully. If we're honest with ourselves, there are times we lack even the desire to live faithfully. This is why we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling to recognize our weakness, our inability so that we'll depend on God who not only gives us the strength to act, but who also gives us the resolve and the will to be obedient. Oh, praise his name. He is good. You see, working out our salvation doesn't come through our own tireless efforts because they are insufficient Rather, obedience to God can only be achieved as we recognize our our vulnerability and rely on the abundant strength and generosity of God who changes hearts and empowers us to do His will by His Holy Spirit living within us. God doesn't do it for us, but He provides us with everything necessary to live faithfully. And so obedience is working out what God has already worked in. Then in verse 14, Paul, he gets right to the point about what obedient living looks like. Are we ready for it? Are we? Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Seriously. Yeah, thanks. Let down, right? Like, to the, I think to the Philippians, this is kind of a letdown. Certainly to us too. Like Paul's building up to this moment, letting us know what obedient, faithful living for God looks like. And all he's got is don't grumble and argue with each other. Seriously, he sounds like a parent, right? He totally does. But here's the thing. We are so prone 
to this kind of behavior, aren't we? We're so prone to it. Most of us don't even think twice about it, to be critical of things or of people, you know, to complain when things didn't go our way or to vent about a boss or a parent or a child or a sibling. Might I even say a pastor or a congregant, right? Like, we excuse this kind of behavior like we're just, we're just letting off steam, right? And I'm inclined to this kind of behavior myself, totally. I tried this week as I was reading this passage to pay special attention to my words and my thoughts. And when I was grumbling or when I was being argumentative, and man, oh man, it is amazing how much even I struggle with this and how hard it is to curb this kind of behavior. And I failed at times. I failed. And I know I'm not alone in this, friends. You see, this isn't just Paul's commands to the Philippians way back when, but this is God's commands to Christians everywhere, including those in Coquitlam, even those at Calvary Baptist Church. You see, God's people throughout history have never been exempt from the temptation to grumble and argue. And Paul makes this point when he says to them, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. You see, Paul has taken these words out of Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, where Moses says of the Israelites, he says, they are a corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Now, the reason Moses said this about the Israelites, you know, God's people, is that when they were wandering in the desert, they continuously complained and grumbled and argued against Moses, who told them, like, listen, guys, your complaints, they're not really against me. You're, you're really complaining against God. It says in Exodus 16, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and Moses said, the Lord, he's heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. And now, in Philippians, by faith in Christ, these Philippian believers, along with us, have become God's people. We are God's people. And Paul doesn't want them or us to fall into the same sin the Israelites did by grumbling and complaining in the desert. And so Paul, he flips the script. He turns Moses' words from Deuteronomy 32 around Instead of saying that they are corrupt and not God's children, a warped and crooked generation, Paul says to the Philippians that if you do not grumble and argue, you will be blameless and innocent children of God among a warped and crooked generation. You see, Paul knows that the temptation to behave like this, to argue and grumble, complain, it's so deep within our human DNA, there is no escaping from it in our world. But as the people of God, those within whom God works to will and act, we can and we need to be different. We need to be holy, which means set apart, to be pure and innocent when it comes to this kind of behavior, friends. You see, the people of Israel, they loved being God's people. They really liked embracing their status of being God's people, but they never fully embraced their calling to live out their identity. They failed to live out what God had worked in. 
And it would be easy for us just to dismiss a command like this from Paul, not to grumble and argue as, you know, this is insignificant because, come on, there's far greater sins to avoid and there's far more important things that we need to be obedient in. But Paul spends a considerable amount of time in all of his letters to the churches, specifically addressing this kind of behavior because it's vitally important. And I think it's vitally important for two, two reasons. First of all, Paul is concerned with the unity of the church. The unity of the church. A couple of weeks ago when my friend Brad Berneski was here, he said that a disunited Jesus community does not reflect the essential character of its Lord. And so our unity is of utmost importance. I've heard a lot of people talk these days or come to me and speak about their fears of the church unity being threatened. And specifically, the things that they point out are outside forces threatening our unity. Things like mandates or bills in parliament that have been passed or, or persecution. And, you know, it's important that we be aware of these things and that we be prayerful of them. But friends, grumbling and arguing amongst believers within the community is far greater threat to church unity than any persecution that comes at us from the outside. Internal threats are far more damaging to our unity than external ones. Grumbling is contagious. It's kind of like a plague. Once it starts, it's difficult to stop. It's hard not to become infected and, and join right in. And it can start with just a small group of people who profess good intentions, but it only morphs into gripe sessions that threaten the health and the mission of the entire community. And we know that this dissension, it seems to be an issue at Philippi as well. We know that there were a couple of prominent members who had a disagreement between each other, and in chapter 4, Paul, he pleads with them to be reconciled. And throughout this letter, Paul calls the Philippians time and time and time again to unity through humility. And that's what he's calling us to do. For us to have unity, we need to do away with grumbling and arguing, as Paul says in verse 3, to act in humility and to consider others above ourselves. So the first reason I see him pressing the point with this is for church unity. Number two, the second reason he addresses grumbling and arguing is that it has everything to do with our witness in this world. It has everything to do with our witness in this world. He concludes verse 15 by saying, if you don't grumble and argue, then you will become, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Now this is a quote from Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, which says, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So Paul is saying to the Philippians that if they don't grumble and argue, then they will shine like stars among those who aren't the children of God yet. Those who are a part of that warped and crooked generation, or as Isaiah says, those who are living in the land of darkness. And we all know what the purpose of stars are, right? That they are to shed light. That people use 
stars to navigate, to, to guide them. As Daniel says, lead them to righteousness. And righteousness is all about a right relationship with God. The purpose of us shining like stars is to lead others into a right relationship with God. Are we now beginning to see how important this command not to grumble and complain is? Our witness to the world isn't just our proclamation that Jesus is Lord. Our witness is also our behavior, our obedience. But to our shame and to the detriment of the gospel, the collective witness of Christians in Canada at the moment isn't humbly serving others in love or considering them above ourselves. Christians today have garnered the reputation of being combative, quarrelsome, and looking out for our own interests. God have mercy on us. But it doesn't have to stay this way, friends. God works in us, right? God works in us to fulfill his good purposes so that we can shine like stars. You see, as we begin to put away grumbling and arguing, Paul suggests the world will sit up and take notice that our attitude and actions are different, especially when we don't grumble and argue with each other, others in the family of God. You see, the church, it's made up of a diverse group of people with different backgrounds, with different personalities and tastes, and so this is the way it should be. That's great, but all of these things that make us so diverse also makes us so ripe for conflict. We know this was the same for the church in Philippi as well. If you crack open the book of Acts and read chapter 16, you'll see how the church was formed. It began with a Jewish woman named Lydia, and then they were joined in by a slave girl who used to be a fortune teller. And then finally, there was a Gentile jailer who joined the ranks. And this was the beginning of their church plant, their emerging church. How diverse they were. But it was their common love for Christ that brings them and us together. It makes us a family. And Jesus says in John 13 to his followers, he says, I give you a new command, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so Jesus himself said that somehow our unity, despite our differences, is a sign to the world that it's something that sets us apart and it points to him that this is our witness. Our world is so quick to write people off that they don't agree with. They avoid those that they don't get along with, but Jesus and Paul says that's exactly what is to set the children of God apart, that despite all of the opportunities for conflict that we have, and there are many, that we are resolved to love and stay committed to one another out of faithfulness to Jesus and that we are working out what God has worked in. And not grumbling and arguing, it's so countercultural, it's otherworldly. It points to something beyond you and I. It points to Jesus. By saying that we shine like stars I believe Paul is saying that this unity and lack of grumbling will eventually lead some unbelievers to ask, man, how is this diverse group able to do this? 
Like, how are they able to stay so committed and, and still love each other despite all their differences? And Paul gives us the answer in verse 16. He says, it's because we hold firmly to the word of life. So we trust and believe in the gospel. We hold firmly to Christ. That's how we're able to do it. Like I said, when I was studying this passage this week, I was thinking so much about grumbling and arguing and like, why are we so prone to doing this? You know, why, why do I do this so much? And the easy answer is, of course, well, somebody else is the problem that I'm justified in the complaints that I have or that I have the right view and that they just need to see things my way, which is the right way, and then we'll all get along. None of you seem to be buying that. Perhaps the problem lies a little closer to home. I think a lot of this comes down to ego or our sense of self-importance. Perhaps we grumble and argue because we think we could do better than others. Or maybe we're threatened by them. It's this defense mechanism. But this is why Paul reminds us again and again in this letter that we need to be humble. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling. To value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but each of us to the interest of others. As I tried to pay special attention to my words and thoughts and hold them in check, it was so hard and I was disappointed by the amount of times I failed at this. But I probably didn't fail as much as I would have if I hadn't been studying this text. In fact, I probably wouldn't have even noticed, so I wouldn't have even tried to pay attention to my words at all. And what I realized is that it's so instinctive and natural to act this way that it takes an extraordinary amount of effort and desire to curb this kind of behavior. It takes more energy and desire than I have. But that's okay. Because our obedience isn't down to just my self-effort and desire, right? We are remembering that God works in us to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Obedience is working out what God has worked in. And so the most effective thing that I did this week was to pay attention, was to acknowledge my weakness and go to him. It was to confess my failure, the wrong things that I did to, to repent. So to turn and to, to go to Jesus, to receive his forgiveness and try again and again and again. But not try on my own, out of my own strength, but to ask him for help. And he did help. And he does help. And that's the heart of the gospel message, isn't it? That's the, that's the message I'm clinging to. It proclaims that we can't do any of this on our own. We can't save ourselves. That while we were still powerless, Christ died for us. While we were ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this message is the same for both new believers or even if you've been following Jesus for a lifetime. None of us have made it on our own. Paul says that we still hold firmly to this word of life because we all need the power of Christ in our lives to help us overcome sin and rebelliousness. We all need his help in order to cut out this grumbling and arguments and to walk in obedience as the children of God. 